Today's podcast is brought to you by Patreon supporter Brooklyn Descent. If you'd like to learn how you can support the podcast through a small monthly recurring donation, just check out schooloflast.com forward slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thanks, Brooklyn. Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by schooloflast.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the podcast, first podcast of 2017. I want to thank everybody who has listened in the previous years. And if you're coming on fresh, uh, this is the podcast where we aim. And when I say we, I always mean I. Uh, I aim to help you get bigger and better and more successful in the next year. The past two episodes, we covered goals for 2017. And I had over 115 requests for the Gold Trackers worksheet, so that's awesome. If you heard the podcast but never requested the worksheets, go ahead and do that now. Schooloflaughs at gmail.com, and in the subject line, put Gold Tracker, and I'll shoot that right on over to you. It's free. It's my gift to you to help you outline your new year and what you want to accomplish. Uh, next week's, or in two weeks, we're bi-monthly now, so every other week, on the next podcast, I'll tell you what I learned in 2016, how that's going to help me shape the new year. So that's going to be fun. I have a couple of comedian buddies on with me on that episode to kind of you know, give their perspective. They're at a different point in their career, uh, their careers, but they also have a lot of success too. So we're going to learn what they learned and share that with you. Today on the podcast, wow, we go deep on two topics that are frequent questions from all of my listeners, maybe you as well about how to do crowd work, how to do it better, and also about screenwriting. had several listeners ask me, when are you going to get somebody on the show that talks about screenwriting? And we're going to talk about that uh, very in-depth, formulatic, if you will. Formulaic? Formulatic? Either way, tomato, tomato. Uh, there are formulas or structures that work for all stories, and uh, it's even biblical in some ways. So you're going to want to check that out. That's the second half of the podcast. First, we talk about you know, writing on the fly, doing crowd work, and making it work. So lots of fun in this episode. Real quickly before we jump in, I uh, do want to thank Brooklyn Descent. She was on the podcast a while back, and now she sponsors it through Patreon. If you do that, uh, I tell you, it's definitely worth your $7 or $5 a month, whatever you choose to help us out with. Uh, $7 and above a month, you get to join Club 52. And let me tell you, I've had more fun connecting with this group of listeners than I thought I would, even though I knew it'd be fun. Uh, we laugh a lot during our, our meetups. You know, Club 52 is a 52-week email program that I set you up on to help you incrementally get bigger, better, and more bookable. But also, once a month, we do a Hangout. It used to be on Google. Now it's on Zoom. And we get to swap ideas. Uh, we go over things we talked about in the past couple of podcasts and see how we're applying that to our comedy business. And we also go over the last three or four emails from Club 52 and see how we can hold each other accountable for that. This is a great time to get in on that since it's the beginning of the year. And I know for sure you want to get bigger and better. For $7 a month, I mean, it's, it's kind of a no-brainer. I've kind of weirded out that more people aren't jumping on this. If, uh, if you think you know how to write jokes already, great. But I know we can all learn how to be bigger and better at business. And I learned things from our Club 52 gang. So once again, if you want to join in on that, this is a great time to do it. Schooloflast.com forward slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N. I'll tell you about Nashville comedy classes after the interview with Robert G. Lee. Hey, Robert G. Lee. How's it going, buddy? Oh, very well. I'm out here in Los Angeles, and I'm so excited to talk to you today. Hey, I'm excited to talk to you. I've had a ton of people ask me about uh, a few things that you know a lot about. One is audience warm-up. Another is writing comedy scripts. And the other is, you know, writing a, kind of like a one-man show. And you've done a little bit of all of that. So before we get into the, the big accomplishments, tell me a little bit about how you first started comedy, just kind of when it was, so we can kind of get an idea of, of where you're at and how long you've been at it. 
Well, that's very, it's a fun question. I have been doing it for, it is now three decades. So it's been quite a long time. I actually started in college just, uh, um, and when I started it, I was with a partner and we were known as mostly Bob and Kevin back in college. And we had a, a radio comedy show, but I was too afraid to do stand up on my own. I hid behind characters, and I had to have a partner. That was the only way I had enough guts to get up on stage. And that was in college. And then when I moved out to Los Angeles, went to film school, and decided, you know what, I'm going to get back into stand-up comedy. And I did it by teaching comedy. Just like you've got your comedy class, it's a good way to just get back in the world. And so I, I emceed a, a comedy show at a club and just started working it. And then I fell into TV warm-up. So I kind of came in at bass backwards, shall we say, and then I started the warm-up before I started doing stand-up comedy, because I didn't have that much material. I was just emceeing at a couple clubs, uh, like Igby's and things, back in, um, back in the late 80s, early 90s, but the TV warm-up, it's just ad-libbing. It's just having fun with an audience for hours and hours and hours, and I, I found that I, had, I fit that niche, so that's kind of the whole story. I can give you more detail on how I got exactly into warm-up and what I had to do, but um, that's kind of the gist of how I got started. That's awesome. And was it a comedian or a writer or a producer that kind of connected you to your first TV warm-up gig? Well, it was a performer. Uh, his name was Ray Combs, and eventually he went on to um, yeah. be one. He was one of the guys who hosted, um, oh gosh, the game show that is Family Escaping Family Feud. Me. It is Family Feud. That was Ray. So we were partners uh, back in Indianapolis, and we were starting off comedy together and wrote a script and a couple different shows. And when he came out here, <laughs> he lied his way into warming up a TV show. He would call different shows as an agent, and he says, I got the perfect guy for you. His name is Ray Combs. So he got his... He got, a, he got a break, and he came over to my house. He said, I've got to do the show. we got to work it. So we wrote an entire act for him, and we honed that, honed that over uh, you know, a couple, couple of weeks or whatever. And then when he started doing it, we'd work on a little bit more. And when he left one show, which happened to be Golden Girls, because he had an opportunity in another show uh, to actually perform on it, he brought me in. So my very first break was on Golden Girls, and it was because I was working with Ray Combs, and he got me in. That's interesting. And Ray Combs, I met uh, many years ago. He he had a comedy club going in Cincinnati at one point. Yeah, he was born um, somewhere around, um, was it Hamilton, Ohio? I yeah. think so, someplace close to Cincinnati. And he has since passed on, which is very sad. But um, a lot of stories there about uh, Ray and, and what he became after he became famous. But we started off great friends and did not end up the same way. Interesting. So Ray kind of got you foot in the door. And you, and you knew you, you could do comedy and you knew you could do sketches from back in college. But what... Because I've done a couple of audience warm-up things. What um, gave you the confidence to go up there and just be ready to talk to people whenever they need you, forever, how long they need you? Because that's a, that's a whole different skill set. Well, I wouldn't say I started off with that confidence. I started off with great fear and trepidation. It's, it's, it's <laughs> very daunting to think, oh my gosh, I hope they get this scene right. I have no material left. I'm totally dry. And so you're, and that's when you pray more than anything to God, that the, that, yeah. that the show would hurry up and wrap up. Because these things can last five or six hours sometimes. Now, the good thing on Golden Girls was that they had an audience who loved the show. That's almost easy warm-up. It's falling off a log comedy. It, it's so easy because they want to be there. There's B. Arthur. You know, there's Rue McClanahan. Oh, this is fantastic. What's hard is when you get to a show when no one knows about it and no one cares. That's when you really have to work. So to start off, you think, okay, what can I do? Now, as a stand-up comic, you prepare yourself with material. You think, okay, I've got material on family. I've got okay, I've got a couple jokes now on kids. I know if I go to this audience, I'll I'll tailor my material toward them. When you're doing a TV warm-up, what you have to understand is they don't care about you. You go there totally subservient to the show. Now, after you've done it for an hour or two, the audience starts to like you. Then you can start doing your own stuff. Then you can start doing your own material. But you have to make sure that you get that audience hyped up and ready and laughing at the show. And so that is just total ad-lib material. If you do, if you start off with your material, you will die because the audience is going, I came to see the show, not you. Who are you? You have to, <clears throat> in essence, trick them into liking you over a period of time. And then by the time the show is over, especially if it's four to five hours, the audience should love you. If they don't, you're in the wrong profession. 
Right, <laughs> no doubt. And so that first part, you know, before you get into your material, you're pretty much asking the crowd questions, finding out who they are, and and kind of ad libbing along with them, right? Yeah, and I still say, um, just like you prepare a stand-up act, you do prepare your warm-up act. Like you have a set bit. Uh, I call them prepared ad libs. So I'll bring somebody down and play a game. Now it could be, um, you know, who's come the furthest. Now Jimmy Brogan, uh, who I think we both know and love, uh, will go into an audience and ask people where they're from, what they're doing. I will bring them down with me. And I have found that um, it's always a great prepared ad lib bit. Uh, to find the person who's come the furthest, and hopefully it's somebody from out of the country. So I bring a person down from Sweden, I bring a person down from Hungary, and we talk about the differences between our cultures, and so it's a prepared ad lib. I know, I've done this so long that, you know, I'm going to ask them what street they live on, and then make a joke about that. I'm going to ask them about this. I'm going to ask them how Americans are different from people in their country. So I've got my questions to ask them, and I know, okay, that will last anywhere from five to ten minutes, depending on how interesting they are. And if I've got two people, I'll just go back and forth. And then I know that's my bit. Okay, that bit is done. Now I'll pull in another trick from an, from my bag of tricks. Okay, this one's going to be, I'll give something away. All right, that happens later in the night because you don't want to start too soon because people will get greedy. Right. But let's say I've got a book signed by Norman Lear or I've got t-shirts or I've got a script to give away. I'll hold off on those, but that's another prepared bit. Okay, let's say I'm going to do the dating game. I'll bring down somebody from a group and talk about their group and then I'll find the single person and then we'll play that whole game. And then So every time... There's a big costume change. I bring out something new. I don't do the same thing time after time after time. As the night goes on, you get to know your audience. You get to know, okay, they're lagging in energy. Now it's time for a dance contest. All right, DJ, let's have a dance contest. Boom, brings the energy right back up. So you're always thinking, what can I do to keep this audience engaged, not only with the show, but also keep their energy up? So it becomes a science, but after you've done it for such a long time, you just feel it, and that's just what happens. You know the crowd, you know the producers, and you know what kind of level of laughter they need, and so you do whatever you have to to get to that point. But it is sometimes, like when I was starting off, um, gosh, way back on Family Matters, we would literally have gangs come to the show. Wow. And, I mean, they weren't (laughs) horrific gangs, but they were definitely gangs, and so... To show that you are not afraid of them, I would always pick the leader of the gang, which is very easy to find, and bring them down. And if I could make fun of him and make him laugh, then the gang was with me for the rest of the night. And I knew I'm safe. (laughs) Now, if they don't like you, then they start making little heckling noises all throughout the show. And it gets picked up in the microphone, and they have to throw out the audience laughter. So you find out just by jumping in the lion's den how to control an audience. It is definitely lion taming. That's really what it comes down to. That's awesome. So yeah, the the focus in that first part is all about engagement and getting their trust. And then as you go throughout the night, you can have more fun with it and get into your own thing. And I think that's a good lesson for the people listening that, you know, not just as a TV warm up, but as a an MC in some of these different venues that aren't traditional comedy clubs. You know, bringing some people up front, having uh, never asking a question you don't know the answer to. I think is kind of what you were saying there with your prepared bits. And then once you have them and they love you jump into your comedy but yeah you start off really fast with your jokes right up front they don't know who you are or why you're there and you can't go back to those jokes later <laughs> that's exactly right <laughs> and uh, something you really have to learn when i say you're subservient to the show uh, a lot of it comes down to ego a lot of people cannot do tv warm-up or be a host on a show any kind of show because they want the show to be about them. And I've seen it with stand-up comics uh, and just hosting a regular, well, we've seen it at you know the, the CCA conference. People who go up and, and want to be a host of the, of the of, let's say, um, amateur night or something or a, a showcase, and they just want the, it to be about them and they do their material. It's like that dies. So you really have to know it's not about you. And uh, if you cannot be subservient to the show in a TV warm-up, you will not last very long. And those are the people that probably have bigger careers than I do now. I know they do, but they couldn't make it. And I've been doing it for 30 years purely because I know, one, I'm funny, but two, I know where my bread is buttered, and I know that it's about them, not about me. It's a, it's a little bit of Charlotte's Web. You know, the pig is great, the pig is great, and that's your job. <laughs> right. Now, that's good stuff. And it, obviously, from, from doing that warm-up, you said you kind of did the warm-up before you had your stand-up act together. Were you finding bits and pieces that worked that you took to the comedy club stage and other places after the, the warm-up started evolving? Well, it's 
Yes and no. Uh, what I've taken to my warm-up, from my warm-up to my stand-up, is the ability to ad-lib. I have found that people love ad-libs. That's why it works for a lot of performers, but it's really difficult. People, they, they can smell prepared material. But once you dive off into the audience and start asking about their jobs or where they live or what they do or how many kids they have, they know, wait a minute, you're, you're making this up on the spot. And the, and the energy goes right up. Man, do they love it. If you can get on a good roll and find somebody that you can play with and they know you're making it up on the spot, audiences immediately love you. So I have trained myself over 30 years doing warm-up on how to ad-lib and audiences don't scare me anymore. So it's fun because... Then you weave in your material, and after and and as you're ad libbing and finding a subject matter, your brain is also going, "What material do I have to match this?" So you know, if I'm talking to a lady about her job and I've got material, if she's a teacher, well, I've got prepared material about being a kid in a class or teachers or my kids in school. So it's a great segue over into prepared material. And now when that when you run out of that, you go back in the audience and start ad libbing again. So what happened is. The two careers really coincided that I would be able to use my prepared material. I would bring it into the warm-up after I'd been do- doing the show for an hour or two. And then the ad-libbing ability from the warm-up, I took over to my stand-up. And it's, it, it helped my shows tremendously, especially when you do something more than a half hour. If you're only doing 10 minutes, you don't have time to ad-lib. You've got to do your prepared material. But when you're doing a, a regular show of, let's say, 45 minutes, man, you better ad-lib something in there or the audience is going to get less and less interested because they just know, well, this is by rote. You've got to make it special for me. Audiences are selfish. They want to know, what is it about me that you love? Let's talk about me. Uh, and every audience has that, junior high kids and high school kids especially. But um, generally, audiences love to hear something new and fresh. So that, that's kind of... That's my answer to your question. Both sides help each other. Yeah, it's great. It worked out well for you. And then at some point, you got a chance to perform on a couple of these shows that you were warming up, correct? (laughs) Yes, they threw me a bone. I get approximately 30 cents a year from old repeats of Hogan Family in Australia. um, I was always waiter number five or, you know, the delivery guy. It was always made, and they were very nice. I I can't complain. I was the MC one time on Wings, uh, and and they brought me back a couple times on Perfect Strangers as the delivery guy. But it's always something where you just run down, do one scene, and run back up. Because the job they want you to do is TV warm-up. They don't really want you to be on on screen they they like you and after you've done a show for a while i you know i would put it in my contract that you know i get to be on the show at least once so yeah i was on perfect strangers at least three or four times because i did that show for a long time wings once um, family matters hogan family uh, married with children all, early on i really wanted to be an actor i was moving that way then i realized this is stupid i don't i don't want to be an actor and i'd much rather direct and write and be behind the scenes so you kind of find out where you where you um where your skill set lies. Um, uh, but yeah, it was very fun. And it, uh, but that, yeah, those things are really what I call my mullet years. That's when the hair was really long. In the back. <laughs> <laughs> that was my, my sitcom years. Yeah. That's great. And you know, you just touched on something super important there that I think some of the newer comedians out there should hear. And that, uh, actually I've had in a com- couple of conversations recently is, you know, it takes you a while to figure out what your skill set is. And everybody that starts out as a, aspiring to be a standup, uh, that might just be the the vehicle that gets you to be a writer or to be a producer or to be uh, something that's an, an, ancillary ancil, ancil something that's what's the word ancillary? Yeah, I know what you're talking about, and I can't pronounce it either. So I will yeah. say yes, you are correct. Yeah, something that goes along I with think it's stand-up. ancillary, but yes, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Something that's ancillary, but not exactly what you started off to do. And then I think a lot of people, when they get to that point, they just quit everything because they, they really had that dream of being a stand-up or had the dream of being an actor. But there's so many roles that are important to make all those things happen. And you found your skill set, and you liked writing as much as performing, and you started to write some things uh, recently, a full-blown movie, which we'll talk about in a second. But back in those warm-up days, did you write some sitcom episodes or, or mess around with a little bit of that? I did, uh, and, and I'll get to that. Uh, let me table that just for a second and agree with what you're saying. Judd Apatow being the best example of what you're talking about. <clears throat> he was a stand-up comic, and he was uh, in all the clubs I was in early on, and he realized as he was going up the ladder, he was never going to be the headliner. But he was good friends with a lot of people who are headliners, and he could write material for them. And so he started writing for Gary Shanley and a lot of different comics, and then he moved into movies. He was smart enough to know 
where his skill set was. And I love the fact that you may not agree with his movies or like what he does. I, he ad-libs more in his movies than I like more structure. Uh, so we, we're different in that. Um, he's also 10 times more successful than I am. So perhaps his method is right. But he was a guy who found, you know what, I'm not good here, but I'm good there. And I know a lot of stand-ups who moved on. Uh, to become good directors and good writers and moved into writing for uh, sitcoms or sometimes performing, but most of them usually went behind the scenes. Now, as far as what I did early on, yeah, I I really had a desire to write uh, on those sitcoms. And that was an interesting experience because I did write on some of them, and that was the other part of my contract. When I said, you know, I don't really want to be an actor, but I'd much rather be in the room. Uh, I was in the, um, I got to be in the writers' room for uh, shows like Step by Step and um, Getting By and Wings, and a couple. Uh, Jenny McCarthy had a, a short show that came out, so I would do the warm up on show day, but I would go in during the week, one or two days, and work on the show, and that really was a great thrill, and I learned so much. But unfortunately, I also learned, you know what, Bob, you don't really fit in this area. And that was quite an eye-opening thing for me. When you're a stand-up, you know if you're working. It's like, you know what, I, I know I'm funny. I know I can do it. But then when you're in a, in a room of a different kind of person personality, I guess I should put it, that you, you may or may not fit. Um, and, and I would say this is the overarching idea of, of what Hollywood is and was, is that uh, you know, a show like Wings. I loved it. I loved the people, but the people uh, who wrote on it, they won Emmys, and there were there was a, a, a bit of a snobbish click going on there. So the young writers really had a hard time breaking in. And I got a couple jokes in, and they would go, "Look at that, Robert G. Lee you got a joke in the show." And so those were proud moments. But it was one of those things where, I, as a, I am a, I'm a faith based performer, and sometimes they would openly mock me. Uh, it was like, and I'd be out of the room and I'd hear him talking about, oh, let's give this to the Christian, see what he comes up with. Uh-huh. Some of them respected me. A lot of them didn't. Uh, and I think in my early on career, it was difficult. It really was hard. So it's like I came to the point, it's like, boy, I came in here to write sitcoms. I, I don't think this is where I fit. And that's when I moved into moving toward, I mean, I started writing for VeggieTales. Okay, I fit there. I started, and that's when I started moving into my own scripts and trying to make independent movies because I knew I, at least then I would know if I thought I was funny or if it worked. And I wouldn't have a room people going, nah, we don't like that. So um, some of the shows were just a great experience. Some of them were, it was just torture for eight hours. <clears throat> and it, um, it's almost like you're in corporate America because each room, and I say room for sitcom, has a different personality. One personality would be <laughs> you tell a joke and everybody would laugh, but until the executive producer repeated it, it wouldn't get in the show. And that's what you learn. Oh, if I make him laugh and he repeats it, he thinks it's his joke and then it gets in the show. So there's that style. There's another style of um, condescension of everything is that everybody in the room pretty much hates everyone alive. <laughs> and if you if you come in with condescension and, and hate in your heart, then you're going to work on the show. So I, I learned a lot of lessons, but eventually figured out, this is not where I fit either. So again, it was going back to what is your skill set? What can you do? And where can you fit? Uh, and also, well, how will they pay you? you know, what will they pay you to do? And it's just, for me, unfortunately, for a long time, it was TV warm-up. Gotcha. And then you have eventually... Um, not only written your new movie, but you've done, is it eight one-hour comedy shows, programs, specials, whatever you like to call them? Is it- sure, let's go for that. Yeah, let's- <laughs> is, is it eight? As, uh, yes, I have done eight, so over a long period of time, and I um, just did my most recent one last year. And each um, stand-up special is about an hour long. Uh, so, you know, I did one with um, video slides behind me uh, called Picture This with my whole family from start to finish, and that- uh, was you're always looking for universalism. How can I relate to the audience? Um, we did another one called A to Z, where every topic was. I started at A and for at anatomy, and went all the way through Z for Z end, and I had a different subject for every single letter. And you know, some of them uh, with varying degrees of success. Some were very funny, and some were like, "Well, you better work on Q a little bit more." <laughs> uh, but for the that was a fun. So I tried to find a theme for a lot of these videos because. Um, it's just easier to write material for me if I have a theme. But um, the last one's called Weisenheimer, and I'm working on my next one. So it's uh, I, I don't do one every single year. It, that's impossible. But uh, over 30 years, I have done eight. And, um, yeah, it's it, what's great is it's ammunition uh, as a comic. 
you you get up in front of an audience and you never know what they're going to like or not like. But the more material you have, it's like, okay, you guys don't want to do material on X, Y, and Z. Well, how about this? And then you eventually, hopefully, will find something that the people can relate to. But most of my material relates and revolves around family and observations and faith. And those are really where I go. I'm not a political comedian at all. I don't do any jokes along that line. Uh, you know, because that's, I mean, Jay Leno used to say, if you do political humor half at any one given time, half the audience hates you and half the audience loves you. And so why would you want to do material like that? So I keep it pretty much family oriented. Gotcha. Now, I'm of the same mind that, you know, I'd rather entertain everybody as opposed to just half. And for the same reason, I try to keep my shows super clean because everybody can laugh at clean. And if you're dirty, maybe half the people laugh twice as hard and you think you're doing a great job, but really you're only entertaining 50%. That's just, that's just my, my approach too. But, you know, keeping it straight down the middle uh, politically is a, a smart thing. And I, and I think too, right now, people are exhausted with political humor. You know, it's, exactly. I right am. Now, if you come up and just do a regular routine, people are relieved. It's like, oh, thank you. I didn't know we could laugh anymore. I thought, I thought 2016 was going to kill us all. Oh, th- so I don't bring up fear. I don't bring up politics. No, don't even go there yeah. because uh, the TV warm up, I might throw out one or two jokes, but uh, in a regular show, nope. Don't want to make people uncomfortable. Don't want to do it. There you go. It's time to make America laugh again. That's- I agree. <laughs> Well, let's talk about this uh, movie that you, you wrote, produced, uh, everything around it, the uh, Can I Get a Witness Protection. Uh, let's go back. Uh, I'm going to ask you about the structure in a second, but how long ago was the, the seed planted for the movie, and, and roughly how long did it take from that to when you finally had it done? Great question, and one for anyone, <laughs> a good question for anyone who's thinking of doing this. It, it was a four-year journey. I did not think it was going to be a four-year journey. I did not plan on it. I don't know if I would have gotten into it had I known it was going to take this long. We literally just got distribution this week. Oh, great. So it'll be out next June. It'll take about six months to get the cover and do the publicity and all that kind of stuff. But uh, it started off as a very simple, hey, we've got a barn. Let's put on a show. It was a church was going broke. They needed to have Hollywood types come in and rent their church out during the week because their congregation was shrinking and they couldn't afford to pay the mortgage. So we said, sure, we'll go in there. I went around the church, found out everything about it. It was kind of dilapidated, which worked perfectly for my story. So I said, you know, what if there was a guy, uh, a plot just like um, Some Like It Hot or Sister Act where someone's in witness protection and they put him in a church? Okay, what would happen? So that's where it started. And I put him in this church. Every scene was shot, every scene but one was shot in the church. If there's a police scene, we put them in a corner, hang a light, and make it look like it's an interrogation room, it's a corner of the church. If if, yeah. if there's a scene where a guy's in a cabin in Montana, we put a green screen outside a window and make, put mountains out there, pan the camera, and now he's in a cabin in Montana. So we, we used every corner of this church to make it look like different scenes. But for the most part, this guy gets thrown in a church his very first day on the job, the head pastor dies and he has to take over. So that's pretty much the plot. And there's danger from outside of the, the drug ring finding him. And of course, danger on the inside as a guy who knows nothing about religion has to run a congregation of, and especially one woman who, you know, that very tight religious type who thinks the church is her church. And so it's his faith journey as he goes through it. So it's a comedy. It's a faith-based comedy. It's a faith-based screwball comedy. But that started with just a simple idea. Hey, we can do it. Like Judd Apatow, um, he works with an ensemble. I have some of the funniest people that I think are working in Hollywood today uh, because I, I was um, working at a, uh, as a church drama director for many years as a part-time job at, um, at my church. And from that, we really developed shorthand on how to work with people. And so I wrote the parts in the movie for them. So if nothing else, I will say the, the movie does have some great ensemble comedy actors. And that is where I get my greatest satisfaction of seeing my people, my friends, do what I love for them to do, I, I say, this lady's a great singer. This guy's a great physical comedian. This guy is really good at sarcasm. So I wrote the parts for them, and so we all and we rehearsed beforehand. Shot the movie in 16 days, very low budget, under $200,000. Raised the money from Kickstarter, from um, Indiegogo, and from people in our church that said. We love what you're doing in our church. We want to see you do that on a big scale. And so this is what I've wanted to do for years and years. And as part of that, the lack of success in sitcoms, because there are too many 
um, chefs in the kitchen, as it were. And I said, you know what? Every year, I mean, just to backtrack a little bit, Christian music got to be as good as secular music with Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith, you know, early on in the in the 80s, 70s and 80s and 90s. And then VeggieTales started doing video. But um, Christian movies really didn't come into the, um, the fore until equipment got cheap enough that everybody could do it. And the Kendrick brothers started off with theirs, you know, facing the giants made for a hundred thousand dollars and look where they've gone. And so now everybody's jumping on that bandwagon and it's because one, the market's there, but two equipment is finally cheap enough that we can make a movie that looks like a, a feature with such cheap equipment. So you really can make a movie for a, a low price anyway, made the movie. And then it was Literally three and a half years of post-production. It's like, how can you make a movie in 16 days and then take so long to have it finished? Well, everybody's working on favors. My editor was working on Supernatural, so she could only edit whenever she's not working full-time. My composer was working on Amazing Race and different shows. He could only compose whenever he's not working full-time. My special effects guy, he was working for Disney, doing things in Europe and over in Asia. He could only do the special effects when he wasn't working full-time. And some of these guys are working 40, 50, 60 hours a week. So when you're independent, you're asking for favors, and you're and all you can do is wait and go, okay, you finished it whenever you want. I mean, the opening title sequence took nine months. Oh wow! I was like, how long can this possibly go? But they could only it was animated, and they could only do a little bit at a time. So you just have to be really, really patient. And so then it was finally wrapped up, and then we started taking it out to distributors. Uh, we put it in a film festival, and it won, won best feature comedy, and that was great. And so now, just this last week, uh, we got a yes from um, a distributor, and so he's going to, he's out of Nashville, um, faith-based distributor called Jack's Distribution, and he did God's Not Dead 1 and 2, he sold that into different stores. It'll go directly to um, video, it'll be, it won't be in the theaters, it'll be, because it's such a small film, but, uh, you know, Netflix or PureFlix, those kind of things, we'll get it on the video on demand and all that kind of stuff. So, now comes the next part of life that I know nothing about, and that's promoting a movie, but that's, uh, that's going to be my job for the next six months. That's awesome, and I'll probably circle back in six or eight months and ask you and pick your brain about how that promotion tour went and how you, what you learned along that. But let's let's uh, dig in this movie a little bit more. You said it, you know, you shot it in sixteen days, cost you know a little under two hundred thousand dollars, and then it took just three and a half years for post production. Did the um, the cost or go up in that three and a half years, or was the two hundred thousand able to to cover the post production through favors and and things? Well, it, the cost was, that was all, it's a it surprise. We did have to go back to Indiegogo to raise a, a, another, you know, $10,000 or so to cover a lot of it because, yes, the post production was quite an eye opening um, exercise. It's like, you know, if you're going to do a good sound mix and have a good engineer and do the, all the Foley, eh, you know, that goes up to $20,000, $25,000. Well, that was not in the original budget. And then the, uh, so really the cost, the, the God saving grace of saving us to the last minute came when we were shooting the film because SAG, uh, these are things you learn as an independent filmmaker. Okay. You have to hire SAG actors. You hire SAG actors because they're really good. If you hire amateurs, your movie's going to look like it's made by amateurs, but SAG, you have to put all of the money for the salaries for your um, actors in escrow before the movie starts because SAG doesn't trust you because they've had a lot of experience. So let's say it's thirty thousand dollars. Well, my whole budget at that time was fifty, a hundred and fifty, and now I had to take thirty thousand that I could not use to pay anybody else. Couldn't pay the crew. Couldn't do anything, and had to put it aside in escrow. So now we're strapped. I don't have the money to finish the film. I needed that $30,000 to finish all the shooting. So we had to have loans and friends come in and help us out and Kickstarter just to get through the filming. Then when the filming was done and we proved to SAG that we paid all the actors, they gave us that $30,000 back that was in escrow, and we used that for post-production. So really, SAG forced us um, to find money, and they helped pay for our post. But these are things... You should know going into filmmaking, but nobody does know, at least when, like me, you're, and you're a neophyte. It's like, well, let's just make a movie. No, there's a lot to it, working with unions. that, ha- And so uh, SAG um, was one thing. The DGA and the WGA, Directors Guild and Writers Guild, were the very same thing. But I was the member of those, so I got a total of zero. Uh, I deferred all the money, so mine was, it was just a project, um, a lo- labor of love. 
So it is not a money-making operation. It is purely because you want to do it and have a passion to do it, which is my next point to filmmakers. Don't do it unless you really love the project. Don't think that you're going to become famous and that it's going to be your ticket to Hollywood. Make sure you love this thing because you could live with it for a long, long time. No doubt about that. And uh, in case anybody didn't know, the SAG is Screen Actors Guild, so uh, actors that have been part of that are protected by that group. So very cool. Well, let's dig into what I, I find the most interesting uh, as, as a comedian and as a writer is the structure of a movie, at least the, the way you approach this one. When I watch movies, you know, you can kind of tell the beats a little bit. When you watch TV shows, you kind of know by that 35-minute mark there's going to be the major twist, and there's certain plot lines that unravel and get tied back up at the end. But for a movie like this, um, what approach did you take and you know, can you share some of that for the people that are listening that would like to write a movie, or, or even if it applies to stand-up or, or any kind of long form? Yes, and there's just so much to say about it. And I went to film school many, many years ago at the American Film Institute as a screenwriting fellow. And so that, that is a love I've always had. And they tried to cram structure down our throat, but it really didn't become clear until after I'd been doing it for many, many years and learned a thing from um, a good friend of mine, a professor named Sean Gaffney called The Theology of Story, which I'll talk about. Um, if you're talking about a movie, a stand-up act, a play, a one-man act, whatever it is, it, they all follow the very same structure, which sounds very strange, but that's, that's what the truth is. Now, Billy Wilder puts it like this. He says, act one, <laughs> send, your send your hero up a tree. Act two, set the tree on fire. Act three, get your hero out of the tree. So that's, <laughs> that's the most simplified way anybody could talk about story. Uh, when I talk about theology of story, what that really means is, and I'm a faith-based performer, and so everything to me comes from this. Joseph Campbell is a man who in the 40s um, wrote about the, the hero myth. And he traveled the world and he found all these different cultures and found that they all tell stories the same way, that they all have this, this myth, this, um, this way of, of story working. And so he came to the conclusion that, well, there is no God uh, because we all have, no matter what culture we're in, we have the very same story. Well, I look at it from the other perspective as, well, the fact that every culture has the very same hero myth proves that we do have a God and that he has written his story on our hearts. And if, if the story we're watching does not reflect the story in our hearts, it doesn't work. So there, I know that may be a little too highfalutin and too much theory here, but it does really work that every single story reflects exactly what is in the Bible. And that's, I would say it's, it's actually irrefutable. You really can't come up with a story that anytime you see a story and it doesn't quite work, I put it to you that it doesn't follow the classic structure. Now, classic structure is act one, you have the beginning, you know, you tell the audience what normal is, and the story makes a promise of a better tomorrow. Uh, think of Dorothy from Wizard of Oz. What does she have? She, she dreams of a better life outside of Kansas. Sheriff Brody from Jaws starts his new job, but danger is lurking in the water of the of the dangerous town. You know, so, I mean, you have uh, two misbehaved kids from Mary Poppins who need a nanny. Everybody knows what a beginning of a story is. Mm -hmm. That's classic structure. And then you have a thing called inciting incident. And that is where something enters into it. It's um, the shark enters into Jaws. Mary Poppins floats down from the sky. These are This is the inciting incident that now things are going to start. You know, Luke Skywalker, what happens? Um, he gets a, a little robot. And he finds the, the video of Princess Leia. That's the inciting incident in the first act. Now you're off on an adventure. What's going to happen? The first act goes along till you get act two. Act two is the journey. The journey to something. You know, Frodo, well, you know what that is. He, he's got the ring, and they decide who's going to take the ring to Mordor, and it's Frodo. You get to do it. So now we're on act two. That's the middle. This is the heroes made the discovery of some sort, and the story brings in plot points, action points, turning points. You know, the, the, the tornado drops Dorothy in Oz, and now she's on the journey. She has to get to Oz to see the wizard to get back home. Um, and along the way, we know as an audience, she's going to learn some lessons. We know that this is going to be something that they won't start off. They start off one way. They have to change by the end of the film, or we're not going to like it. You know, Mary Poppins leads these children on many, many journeys, <clears throat> but 
the whole time we're also learning about the father and what he's doing because it's really his story. Uh, and act three is the end. You know, the audience needs to have this a satisfying resolution. You've got, um, you know, Sheriff Brody blows up the shark. Mary Poppins, you know, the, the father loses the job, but he realizes his children are more important. So then he gets his job back. Um, act three is always that, um, you know, that, that summation of everything. And then you end up at a place where we go, great, that's, we're happy about it. So I'm going to give you five beats. Number one, balance. Establish what's normal. Number two, unbalance. Something happens to upset the normal world. Number three, quest. The hero does something to restore the balance of what he thinks would be normal. You can, you can think of a thousand hero stories of this quest. Mm-hmm. Number four is the crisis. This is so important. Something happens to prevent the plan from working. This is the low point of the film. Then you have the climax and a new balance, where some sort of new balance is restored. You know, the empire is defeated. Um, it just it goes on and on. These, <clears throat> so these are the basic, that's the basic structure. And we, we've all heard this a thousand times. Um, but then you think about, well, how does this go with the theology of story? What does that mean? Well, think of God's story as one big story. The opening is act one, and that's paradise. You always start off in paradise, and that's pretty easy. Garden of Eden. Every single movie has to start in paradise, and it has to end in a new and different paradise, which when you look at the Bible as one story, that's what it ends up as. In heaven, remember the tree of life is taken out of the Garden of Eden, but it's put at the very end in the new heaven. So, oh, we have this story here. So what is the story? It's you have the balance that we've had in every single story. It's the Garden of Eden. What's the inciting incident? I'll ask you, Rick, what is the inciting incident of the Bible? Well, this snake came along. You, you got it. The snake comes along, upsets the balance. The cart is upset. And now, whether you believe it's metaphorical or real, sin entered the world, entropy entered in, and now God has to figure out a way to get us back. It is his story. It is him seeking us. So the big event kicked out of the garden. You know, man, you go work the crops. Woman, you're going to be in pain and childbirth. You're going to have a hard time from this point on. But God still is seeking man. And so he makes a, a deal with Abraham saying, you know, Abraham, I'm going to be your God. And throughout the Old Testament, he's showing a system of sacrifices. Again, going too theological here, but it's all God seeking man and showing us that we cannot do it on our own. So, that's the journey. That's the journey that God is going through. That's his quest. That's the Old Testament. God is trying to find ways to be known and have his people know us. And then you get to a thing called the midpoint pinch. This Every single story has it. This is where the hero ups the ante and says, you know what? It's up to me. No one can do this but me. Uh, and so this happens time and time again. And the midpoint pinch in the Bible is the nativity story. This is where God breaks through human history. And for the first time in history, God became known to man. It was always ethereal. We never knew him before. And the nativity is what um, does uh, achieves that. Now, another thing that always happens in every single movie is called the temptation and that, of course, is Christ in the desert with the temptation. But there's always a point, and think of um, It's a Wonderful Life. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Stewart gets a job offer from Mr. Potter. It's, it's, that, it's that point when the hero can say, you know what? It's not worth it. I'm going to walk away. And the hero always goes, well, no, 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 doggone it. No, you're, you're, I'm not like everyone else. You know. And so Jimmy just says no to Mr. Potter, and we go, yeah, be your own man. Right. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> They go off, and now the hero's on the last part of the journey where we know, oh, no, this is not going well. Well, in the Bible, and this is what they even taught us in film school. I'll, I'll never forget the day when they said, what is the crisis of the Bible? It is where everything falls apart and nothing works. And we kind of looked around and said, you're really talking about the Bible? He go, yeah, what is the crisis of the Bible? And he said, well, it's the cross. The cross is when the crucifixion happens, when it all goes awry. Every single story has to have a death or a metaphorical death to push the hero to the final climax. And after the cross happens, everyone's depressed and you have that scene where everyone thinks it's over. There's no way we can win. And then the hero find, you know, Rocky finds the way. I'm going to get up from the mat. I'm going to go the distance. Whatever it is, 
they get over the pain and they have the climax. And the climax is always that big, big fight where the hero wins or loses. I mean, sometimes uh, the hero loses. That, that, those are the tragedies. But after they win, like Jesus is resurrected, then you have the new balance, otherwise known as the denouement. And in heaven, it's the new Jerusalem. Uh, and then everything is like it was supposed to be at the beginning before all this happened. So in Star Wars, it's the you know the Rebel Alliance has won and, and blown up the Death Star, and we have the victory parade, and Leia hangs trophies around their neck. Now it, for their that it's a short term victory, but it's a victory nonetheless. So you find these beats in literally every single successful story, and if it's not there, somehow it doesn't feel right. If a character doesn't have enough of a change, if they don't have a good resolution, you go, I don't know, it just doesn't feel right. And early screenwriters, young neophytes, don't understand what these beats are. Whether they think it's theology of story or not, it has to have these beats, and if it doesn't, you will have a failed screenplay. That is incredibly deep, man. I'm taking notes and looking at it, and... um God, there's a lot there. Can you you gave us great examples from the Bible and from other movies? Could you just walk us through your movie with those five beats and just give us a synopsis of what uh, goes on for your char- main character? Well, sure. Um, if you talk about normal, normal is a guy um, at home, and uh, our hero is he owns a trucking firm, and that's normal. And he and his wife are not getting along. She owns a decorating firm. And that's and really happens, normal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> so. He, so they're in San Diego. They're they're a, a, a high. I have to make them fairly high um, society because you. Ha- I want a contrast for where they're going to go. So what you have is you have the balance. The balance is this is their life, and they're going to be happy even though they're not happy. Their their marriage is falling apart. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but our hero owns a trucking firm, and it so happens that a drug lord has been renting his trucks, and unbeknownst to him, uh, which is, I got this from an article in the LA Times, they're using these trucks and hiding money in the lining and putting in false fronts and false backs and under the carriage and in the engine, and drug firms are going back and forth from Columbia and transporting money, and then they launder it, and they trans- transport drugs. Well, he witnesses a gangland murder, and so... Now you have an inciting incident where the DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency, now takes him out of his world and has to hide them. And so this couple that isn't getting along that well now is forced to leave. They don't want to leave, but they have to. They're yanked out of their life. <clears throat> inciting incident has happened, and now they're thrust, they're kicked out of the garden, as it were, and they're put into a church. Uh, they And then the next day, they find out that... <laughs> Um, the church has um, clothing giveaways and the place where they hung all their clothes, the next day people are going through them and taking them. All the homeless people have taken all their clothes. <laughs> so so this is a rich couple that has no bedroom, no clothes, and now they're at a place where they don't want to be, but they're in danger for their lives. So now that is, that's the ripped out of the garden. Now they start the quest. Well, what do we do? <clears throat> Excuse me. How do how does this church work? Uh, I've never, neither one of them is religious, so they have to fake their way through it. Well, the start of the next journey where they really go through is that the head pastor has a heart attack and dies, as I said. Now that pushes them to, oh, he is now the head pastor. So now here's the guy, his his quest, as it were, is to, well, he's got to give sermons and he gives the worst sermons ever because he knows nothing about the Bible. So he's got to cram everything in. His midpoint pinch comes when he realizes he is a total hypocrite. He has no knowledge uh, of the Bible, but and he, uh, the thing is, he's he's not doing it on purpose. He just is a it's a hypocrite by being hypocritical by um, by proxy. He, he's been forced into the situation by the drug enforcement agency, and they can't leave because they don't have the money. It's all locked up in a safe that they don't have the combination to. So, our hero has a conversion moment because he reads so much about what the Bible is all about from. Josh McDowell's book of evidence that demands a verdict to C.S. Lewis, mere Christianity, it slowly sinks in and he realizes, wait a minute, to not be a hypocrite, all I have to do is believe what I'm talking about. And so he has that conversion moment. And that is that moment, as I said, the midpoint pinch where it is the guy, the hero says, I'm going to double down. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. I'm the only one that can do it. So that's what the conversion moment's about. Um, the temptation is now you can walk away if you want to. The DEA says, I've got a new place to fig- that we can take you. We can get you out of this church. And he says, no, I, I want to see how this plays out. I want to stay here. So now he's invested. He actually is excited about the adventure of Christianity. 
and he moves on uh, to lead this church, and the church starts growing, and people start flocking to the church. What was empty is now alive, but there, of course, is the person who says, no, you're not running the church the way I want it run. I want a traditional service. I don't want us to go out and help the poor. I want to have a three-point sermon and an offering. And so then she discovers he never went to school for theology. He has no degree, and he is a fraud. And so she, um, at the crisis, it's over, it's done. The church that he loves now is going to be taken away from him. All is lost, and she has a congregational meeting to kick him out. And in front of the whole meeting, he has to admit that he is a fraud. He can't tell them why. And so we as the audience are rooting for him, saying, oh, please, come on, you got to tell her. But he can't do it. And at that moment, <clears throat> that's the, the crisis. All is lost. Uh, everything is painful. That now the criminal who, at the very beginning, murdered, uh, he saw the gangland murder, discovers where he is because there was a news report earlier showing how popular this church is. He tried to run away, but they got his picture on the on the screen. And so now in the church... After everything is gone and the, and the crisis happens, in comes the murderer, and now it even gets worse. And so what's going to happen? How does um, the climax come? Well, you'll have to watch the movie. But then, of course, the, the hero always has to win, and we have to have a new balance set where everything turns out, where this is where he's supposed to be all along. So the marriage works out, the church works out, the, the, you know, the criminal is taken care of, and then you have a clean, neat story. That is incredible. So... I'm trying to think if I was going to pl- apply this to say a um, a story on my own or even your stand up set. So like this could be an example of those five phases. Maybe the uh, the comic starts out. He's married. Everything is going pretty well. Kind of got used to it. Been married for five or six years, and then the unbalance happens when uh, they're going to have kids. There's a pregnancy, and now he's switching gears a little bit. Uh, the journey happens where he's trying to figure out if he can be a parent or not, and maybe even. The, the pinch comes in to where uh, the wife's going to leave him because he's, he's not being a good parent, and then he seeks counseling and things to change himself and maybe even learns a lesson from the kid, and then new balance of normal is restored. He's a good dad, and then as the movie's fading out, you, you hear uh, maybe the wife say, hey, I think I'm going to have another baby, and it, and it all restarts, something like that. I would say it's perfect, except that middle point is the midpoint pinch has to be where he decides, I'm going to change, I'm going to counseling, and then the crisis happens when the wife says, it's not enough, I'm leaving. So the, the crisis yeah. has to be the ultimate low point, and then he learns lessons, changes, becomes what she wanted to be all along, and then they restore their marriage, and he makes a grand romantic gesture to her, and uh, and then she gives him that one last shot that she was waiting for. Now you become the man I always wanted you to be. And now exactly right. And, and by the way, I'm going to have another baby. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, but you're right. A, a good stand-up act. If it's a one act play, which is really what any stand-up act is, we want to see some kind of emotion, which is why Shonda Pierce is so popular. I mean, she'll talk for three hours, but man, she lays out the emotion and those ladies relate. And so the, the, the acts that you walk away from without something that shows who the character is will not be as strong as those shows that have something real from the character, from the uh, performer. Now, it doesn't have to have classic structure. It'll be better with a one-act play if it is, but please remember as you do it, all these things, we want to see a character change. That's why you see material of stand-up Comics going, men are stupid. Yeah, I'm stupid. I'm an idiot. Self-deprecating humor really works because we want we don't want to think that you're cocky, that you have it all together. And by the end of your act, you want to point out that you know things are good. I still got a long way to go, but uh, you know I've realized X, Y, and Z. I know that I love my wife and I love my kids. Which, by the way, is another piece of advice for all stand-up comics: do not insult your wife. Talking about <laughs> politics will alienate half the audience. If you even hint that you don't love your wife you will alienate half the audience. Those women will hate you. It always has to be, you love her, she's better than you, you married up, and you are learning how to be an intelligent man because you're such an idiot. (laughs) That will work. It may seem like you're placating, but that's the only thing that will work in front of audiences. No, that's great stuff. And, you know, at at the very least, if a comic doesn't want to rewrite their whole act, you can restructure some of the bits and put them in, in the places along these five points to where... They'll work better, you know. Got, you know, I once saw a comic. He went up, and he was like the angriest guy for ten minutes. He was just screaming, and then 
like at the 11th minute mark, he told us he just got divorced like a, a day earlier. Well, you know, you, you get everything out of order there. Yeah, what, what you just brought up is called Pet the Dog. If the, if the character comes out, the stand-up comic, and tells the audience that he just got divorced, we have immediate sympathy for him. And then the rest is palpable because we know from where he comes. It's called Pet the Dog because you always have to have your, your lead character do something kind. That's when someone, you know, gives... Uh, throws some you know some bread in front of squirrels or helps their next door neighbor with a flat tire. It's like oh he must be a good guy. We have to like him somehow or we will not or it will be the whole movie's over. It's like well yeah you just got redeemed, but I thought you were an asshat the whole time. So um, no I don't like you. Uh, exactly what you're talking about. If you just restructure things, you can make your whole act work instead of alienating everybody who's watching you. Perfect. Man this this was very good. Man this was almost like I went to a comedy college today and got a got a nice class in here um if people want to find you i know you're on twitter at r-o-b-t-g lee you've got robert g lee.com they can also go to www.saltworks-studios.com to find out about some of the productions and how they can help fund some of that stuff uh, anything else you think i should let these folks know about you before i let you go no, I, I appreciate uh, I know I crammed way too much in in a short period of time. And so it was like getting a tsunami of information uh, as you're sitting there at your desk. Uh, but I appreciate the time you gave me. And I hope that um, uh, that a lot of this will at least make people think about writing their acts a little bit differently or give them some place to 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 go off and uh, to write uh, new material. For me, I love looking at other people's material like um dustin nickerson has uh, written a, a sitcom pilot so he sent that over to me and a couple different people have done that so it's always fun to read scripts because every time you do you learn something you go oh that's where this is weak oh that's how we can improve it that creative juices uh part of it is is what turns me on i love that so um i thank you for letting me just kind of spout uh, my my various theories here no it's great and it was a lot but the great thing about the podcast people can pause come back to it and uh, come back to it when they're further in the process and hear it from a new, fresh set of ears every single time. So I super appreciate you today, Robert G. Lee. Um, enjoy the rest of your day there in sunny California. And I'm sure we'll circle back in six or eight months and find out how all the uh, movie promoting went. Well, that would be great. Best of luck to you. I look forward to seeing you, if nothing else, uh, this next June. You got it. Thanks, buddy. You betcha. Bye. Boom, I told you he was going to deliver the goods. Robert G. Lee breaking it down. I mean, I'm going to listen to this one again and take some extra notes. I did take some show notes for you there at schooloflast.com. Hit the podcast tab and scroll down to this episode. Uh, man, Robert really brought it there. Thank you so much, Robert. Uh, can't wait to see how your movie does and hope you get it out there and support it and get it distributed, distributed the best you possibly can. Oh, man. If you're in the Nashville area and you want to take a live comedy class or maybe even an improvisational comedy class or, dare I say, a performance class, all of those are coming up here in the first quarter of the year. Let me tell you the dates on each of those right now so you know about it and you can find out more information by just shooting me an email, schooloflaughs at gmail.com. I have the live stand-up comedy writing class. That's Wednesdays, February 1, 8, and 15 from 6 to 8 p.m., uh, that's a $200 class, and you have lifetime membership to come back and take that class any point down the road. We also have a pair of classes happening on the same nights, just back-to-back. So this is a great chance if you want to work on your performance skills, a 6 to 8 p.m. class, a performance comedy class, where you'll get up and perform a set get some critiques from me and from the other students, and you get to go around a couple times, work on that set, and get ready for a graduation show here at Zany's if you want to take part in that. Or if you just want to tune up your set and you've taken that class again, again, you can jump in on that. That's March 6, 13, and 27 from 6 to 8 p.m. The improv class, improv level one games, that's also on March 6, 13, and 27. We're going to kick that off at 8 o'clock and roll through 9.30, 9.45 on those nights. You want to definitely jump in on that. That class I only offer once or twice a year. It's tons of fun. You learn how to think on your feet and trust your gut and engage with your audience in a whole different level by learning to do some improv. And every game I teach in that is applicable to your stand-up, and we break down that after each class so you can see how to apply that. All that stuff's happening in the next couple of months. In April, we'll have the Business of Comedy Seminar. That's April 1st, April Fool's Day. What a perfect day. That's a Saturday 
from 1 to 4 p.m. Uh, right here in Hermitage outside of Nashville, Tennessee. If you are a Patreon sponsor, don't forget, at the $7 level month or more, you get the Hangout, and that's happening this Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m. If you haven't downloaded the Zoom app, do that now. You go to zoom.us, and I'll be checking in with you uh, Thursday or Friday to make sure you're prepared for that Hangout on Saturday. Thanks a lot, everybody, for uh, checking out the podcast Check out schooloflast.com for more information, and I will talk to you next week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay funny. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit schooloflaughs.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay funny.